Welcome to Sports Lit. I'm Neil Acharya. And I am Nate Sager. We were not on the office together, but we are best friends. <laughs> Rick Vive occupies an interesting space in Toronto Maple Leafs history. A star, a captain, when the threads that made the team glorious and tied together its rich history had completely come undone. Vibe came to the Maple Leafs in a trade with the Vancouver Canucks on February 18, 1980, right after the last links to their Stanley Cup teams of the 60s were symbolically severed. He would debut at the start of a new decade, similar to the star of the team at the time, Daryl Sittler, whose rookie season was in 1970-1971. Sittler took the captaincy from Dave Keon, who left on bad terms with owner Harold Ballard over contractual issues in 1975. And by, the end of the, and by the end of the decade, the bad blood boiled over because now Sittler was being run out of town because of his rising influence with the NHLPA. Sittler skated out for the last Maple Leafs game of the 70s using a scalpel, after using a scalpel to take the C off his jersey prior to a Saturday night game against the Winnipeg Jets on December 29, 1979. He had done that out of protest when the Leafs traded his best buddy, Lanny McDonald, basically because of his closeness to Sittler and the fact that Sittler had a no-trade clause and couldn't be moved himself. In November of 1980, the founder of the team, Con Smythe, died as well. Died as well. So back to Vibe. There is a saying that Smythe had, defeat did not, le- did not rest lightly on their shoulders, and another that the Canadians still have on their dressing room wall. To you from failing hands we throw the torch, be yours to hold it high. Using the latter, Vive just happens to arrive at the point where the fracture became the great divide in the separate history of the forever rivals. The 80s were not kind to the Maple Leafs, but in that time, Vive excelled. Vive was a pure goal scorer. He was the first Maple Leaf to net 50 in a season, and he did it three times in a row from 81-82 to 83-84. And he would be named captain at the age of 22 until he was stripped of it in 1986. And as he writes in his new book, Catch-22, a play on the number he wore, the C had become a scarlet letter. There was no clean passing of the torch, and the Maple Leafs didn't have a captain until Rob Ramage was given the C in 1989, and no real real success until 1992-93. Allow for one more bit of symbolism before we converse with Rick, and actually before I hand it over to Nate, uh, about this new book that was completed with journalist Scott Morrison and released one week ago on November 17th, under the Penguin Random House banner. Vive ended up with 299 goals with the Maple Leafs, and seeing his connection with the club, which is outlined in the book, I think 300 would have meant something to him. Sittler ended up with 484 career goals, 16 away from 500. If there had been more stability during those years that they played in Toronto, both of those players, if those milestones could have been achieved, that's something you, you wonder about. Vive played in the NHL from 1979 to 1992 for the Canucks, Leafs, and Buffalo Sabres, and he's still the current franchise leader with 54 goals scored in a single season. As Scott Morrison writes in the acknowledgments, and I'll take the last line of the quote he uses from poet and novelist Ben Okri, where there is perfection, there is no story to tell. And he follows, Rick was a great hockey player who could have been greater, if only. I'll stop at hockey, but there's much more to this book, um, as you may have read about, and as you will find out in our questions with Mr. Vive. Uh, but before we speak to Rick, here's Nate. Yeah, thanks, Neil. Uh, Rick's Vive's uh, stock and trade, of course, was that heavy shot, and you know, catch twenty-two gets into you know heavy subject matter: the struggle of playing a pro sport when you have, as Rick reveals, that an, un- an anxiety disorder. But I found this book was really done in an accessible way that didn't fixate on, on, the, on the negatives. Uh, now, two good books by famous sports people who have anxiety and mood disorders are, of course, tennis great Andre Agassi's Open and football greats Steve Young's QB, My Life Behind the Spiral. It is refreshing to see another notable National Hockey League star making a contribution in this regard because for a long time, hockey, even relative to the other elite sports, hewed to the you know stiff upper, upper lip approach. Uh, Vive and Scott Morrison, you know, they have a narrative that I think reflects a truth that every day a hockey player in the NHL is in the NHL is a dream. But it certainly didn't help anyone to be in the circus atmosphere of Maple Leaf Gardens in the 1980s under uh, proprietor Harold Ballard. Uh, You know, fans of all ages should read this to learn about the working conditions for NHL players 
of Vibes Vintage, especially the Ballard Leafs. Your pal Hal. Yeah, where to start? Uh, he ran an unsuccessful pro hockey team. Well, he, he did run it, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, in hindsight, you know, Ballard was probably a narcissist and gave the media sort of this outrageous soundbite ownership it craved. He was even described as a manipulator of the media in the Leafs <laughs> media guide. But he really seemed ill-equipped to handle the governance side. And in, and in the process, he just, as you teed up, Neil, he tore a cultural and a sports institution in Canada asunder. It was all cute for a while, and it made for good headlines. But as you know, chess master Gary Kasparov recently tweeted, clowns with power are not funny at all. Uh, I mean, that was clear in real time, and it was well-documented toward the end of the Ballard era, particularly by the Globe and Mail's William Houston in two books that I read as a tween in the late 80s as a, as a Leaf fan. I think my parents must have wanted me to cheer for the Leafs so I'd understand what the Great Depression was like or something. <laughs> now, I have first no first-hand concept of what the popular understanding in those days was about the the lasting effects of negative work environments. But, I mean, it was definitely negative for the players, and nothing could really be done about Ballard until the damage was done, which sounds a little familiar. Uh, there are par parallels to 2020. Well, you know, when Vive writes, you could quote, you could argue Harold didn't take running the business as seriously as he took saving mo money. My mind kind of pivots to the some of the leadership we've had in Ontario lately where you know they won't spend to protect us from the pandemic because they want maybe they want to spend in an election year and the guy in charge is basically you know kearney in the simpsons standing on the dock saying it ain't getting any safer as he just makes up a pandemic strategy on the fly now i only reference that as an example of how certain pe you know people can gain the you know access to the levers of power and then just hang on to it you know that particular member of the born on third base club and Harold Ballard had one common strength. Their most authentic quality seemed to be, you know, insecurity and resentment of expertise. You know, whether that's directed at, you know, intellectuals and school teachers or directed at the media and hockey players, it, it works on a portion of the public. Uh, in his day, you know, Ballard kind of directed it at anyone who knew hockey because they could te tell that he really didn't. He was a, he was a promoter and a, and a businessman. Uh, you know, the Leafs played in an arena that was called the Carlton Street Cash Box, but they had the smallest hockey operations staff in the entire NHL, which, you know, today, you know, they have the hugest revenues in the league in non-pandemic times, and they probably have one of the largest uh, scouting and research and development staffs under President Brendan Shanahan. So, yeah, we've kind of gotten into the one bad man narrative, but it is the context of uh, Rick Vives' hockey life and times and his story is comp you know compelling because he was playing for this flagship franchise during its toughest decade uh you know neil you and i were both 10 year old ish leaf fans then and i suppose it was probably like being a 10 year old dallas cowboys fan in 2020 you know you could get born into supporting this legacy franchise that gets you know prime tv dates because it's a big market team with a plethora of championships that won in your parents youth you know cowboys owner jerry jones is also a big-time promoter and businessman, and there's evidence that the NFL's Emperor Palpatine has a heart for the working folks. You know, that was a Ballard trait, too. Uh, but Jones also wants the spotlight on him to the extent that you wonder if he even really wants his team to win big. And that was the uh, reality of the Leafs in, in Rick Vives era. You know, Ballard's energy eventually did return to the earth with, with his death in 1990. But as you said, the heavy fog only really began to lift from the franchise a couple of years later, you know, probably when they traded for Doug Gilmore on January 2nd, 1992, exactly 10 years to the day after Daryl Sittler left the team after all the, you know, accumulations of aggression against them from Ballard and, uh, you know, general managers like Punch Imlac. And the passion returned on VHS. Ooh, chill bumps there, Neil. <laughs> chill bumps. Uh, now, you and I have a running thing about my relationship status with the Leafs. I guess due to the stubbornness I inherited from my Scandinavian ancestors, I will always, you'll say, Neil, Nate, you are a Leaf fan. You, like, grew a playoff beard when you were in high school. And, and I'm kind of like, I'm a lapsed Leaf fan. I left the church, you know. Like, you know, I view the NHL through the lens of Leaf Nation, but I have to hold space for the memes and the jokes and the trolling of my immediate family. You, you also, you had the same reaction we all had in, in, in 1993 
when that during game six and 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 that's that's i always hold you to that too but anyway yeah it's a way well you know today it's kind of a way of you know protecting oneself from getting their your heart broke i guess i guess that stems from the ballard era you know he haunts us still uh, to give one example, you know, the, of the stresses, you know, Rick Vive had, you know, something he mentions in the book. He writes about a time his wife, Joyce, was upset about how nasty Ballard was to CBC radio legend Barbara Frum during a phone interview. I recall reading it in one of Houston's books. He said stuff like, our women shouldn't be on the radio. They're a joke. You know, like, first off, like, really? You know, 52% of the population shouldn't have a voice on the radio? And how pathetically naive do you have to be to think Barbara Frum was going to be you know take that bait you know she famously teased a member of the manson family live on the air one time now i was trying to find that you know clip on youtube before realizing you great thundering knit was on the radio just check the cbc site but in trying to find it what i found instead was this cbc tv story circa you know christmas time 1982 when rick vive would have been the 23 year old captain of the maple Leafs. and the angle was all the anger in toronto during this prolonged leafs losing streak or slump i guess they were like something like 114 and one in their last 16 games and still made the playoffs that year because norris division so the first bit of b-roll in the story is vive yelling uh you could clearly read lips uh with this deadpan voiceover players are frustrated and then the voiceover says it's a credit to the legend that people were still coming to maple leaf gardens and you know and ballard is defiant throughout it saying oh people will show up in toronto no matter what i've got my monopoly that lets me serve you meet mediocrity like i wish you know sorry i'm going to do a soapbox jump here you could take that clip into a maple leaf sports and entertainment boardroom you know once it's safe to have gatherings of more than 10 people and use it to just show the unfairness of southern ontario just having the one nhl team uh yeah okay descend from the hobby horse they have what they have with leaf nation because people out of their good nature and maternal optimism you know they supported that ballard brand hockey and you know restitution i think should mean getting another team because you know you know screw the broadcast territories and everything else the nhl has ever claimed without consulting the, with the fans you are a leafs fan aren't you nate yeah no now, this book does succeed at showing what it was like for Rick Vive to be the captain and the 50-goal scorer in that environment. I'm you know, curious how long that's, that stress stays with someone after their playing days. You know, they've really told this Vive and Skip Morris in this story with some sensitivity. Uh, and I think it, and, and it ends up becoming uplifting. And I think we're all looking for an uplifting story right now about, in this case, someone who earned the applause, but, you know, endured tough times throughout and thereafter. Coming up, Rick Five. And we're back on Sports Lit with Rick Vive. Uh, before we start, Rick, I've got to tell you a, a funny story. Um, and I just thought of this last night when I was talking to my co-host about preparing questions for today to ask you. Both myself and, and Nate Sager uh, actually... We didn't know it at the time, but we were at the Cataraqui Town Center in Kingston, Ontario, and we got our first NHL autographs from you and Greg Terrian in 1985. <laughs> so we we have we didn't even know each other at the time, but uh, it, it, it so we we thank you for that. No, no problem. So <laughs> um, it's, it's always nice to give out autographs to the fans, because I know they appreciate it. Well, I have to ask you, and I know I heard you signed 108 books for Indigo, but I imagine there was supposed to be some sort of a, a press tour that was would accompany this, just like when Dougie, Dougie Gilmore or Wendell Clark released their book. So given that the pandemic's gone on for 10 months now, you must have known pretty quickly that you'd have to market this book probably remotely, right? Uh, absolutely, yeah. And uh, I think uh, I signed about... 300 book plates so uh they'll be on some on books and we're going to do some virtual things later on in december so uh i mean it's not like going out to see your fans but you know what it's the next best thing and uh they're doing everything they can so so on that note you retired from the nhl in 1992 and that was right around the time cliff fletcher had uh, kind of reinvigorated alumni relations with the Leafs and people like Daryl Sittler came back in the fold. So I was wondering, when you retired, how soon were you able to come back into the Maple Leafs alumni fold, or did you put that on hold while you pursued coaching and things like that? 
Yeah, no, I went on and, and coached, uh, coached for eight years, five in the East Coast League, two in the American League with Calgary's farm team in St. John, and then uh, one year with the Ice Dogs in Mississauga. And then actually I started working with, at the score, uh, doing some tout uh, analyzing of NHL games on uh, ice surfing, I believe it was called. And then the next step was Leafs TV for a few years and part-time ambassador. And then uh, then after that, I kind of got more into playing the alumni games and doing appearances with some of the corporate partners, like flying down to Florida with some of their MLSE's corporate partners or getting on a train and going to Montreal or Ottawa. So, And I love doing it. It's, it's so much fun meeting people. And uh, so... That's kind of what I've been doing the na- up until now, and uh, except for this year, of course. <laughs> well, well, when you came, when you started doing the, you know, like you're talking about going down to Florida or going on the train to Montreal, did that kind of like complete a part of you? Because I mean, what I got out of this book was I didn't realize, you know, you were, for example, when you retired, you were watching the '92, '93 run and, and kind of rooting for the guys. And I mean, given the way you left, was it? Did you feel complete, or it had come full circle when you were able to engage with the alumni again and connect? with the people that saw you do what you did in the 80s and, and light it up for the, the Leafs? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's fun. It's, you, you know, you're getting to meet guys you played or reconnecting with guys you played with. You're getting to meet guys you didn't play with. I mean, like a guy like Nick Antropov, for instance, I didn't know him. I never played with him, but we're playing in alumni games and we've become pretty good buddies now and, and actually, I always want him as my centerman now because he's <laughs> he's the best player out there. So, so I just get open and say, Nick, get me the puck, and he he does it. Right. <laughs> now, Rick, why why was this a good point in your life to sort of sit down with Scott Morrison and and tell your life story? Well, I think it was time. I, I mean, I've been asked a million, well, maybe not a million, but quite a few times about writing a book and. You know, I just didn't didn't feel it was the right time. And then uh, this time around, I have a grandson now, and he's 15 months old, and my boys are 35 and 31. And, you know, I think I've heard so much, you know, people talking about, you know, people that are playing in the top uh, uh, pro leagues, basketball, baseball, hockey, you name it. And, uh, you know, I think everybody, or not everybody, but a vast majority of them, look at guys that like 13 years in the NHL, all his life must have been perfect. And, you know, he must be a millionaire now, which is one hell of a far, far, far cry from the truth. I can tell you that. Uh, But you know what? I thought it was time, you know, to let everybody know. And I know there's other guys that have written books about their hardships, but you know what? Life isn't perfect. And I don't think it is for anybody. There's hurdles and there's things to, to get through. And, you know, if you're if you're good enough to get through them, or or you persevere, you're going to have success. And uh, if you don't, well, you know, you fall by the wayside, unfortunately, because everybody goes through times in their lives when they they have to dig deep and and get over something. Yeah, and of course, the title is of course Catch Twenty Two. What 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 are some examples of the Catch Twenty Twos you faced as a as a hockey player and as an individual? Well, I, I I didn't count them, but I think if you, throughout the book, there's probably about 30 or 40 situations, and uh, it's just one of those things. I We talked about the title, and I mentioned that, and then, of course, I had to check to see if there's any infringement problems with the movie that came out many, many years ago, and uh, of the same name, and uh, there wasn't, but uh, I think if throughout the book there's you know i can't think of one off the top of my head but uh other than maybe when harold said you're captain he didn't ask me and uh um it was a situation catch 22 situation that i i didn't think i was ready for to be the captain thought i needed a year or two more in the league but at the same time i didn't want to leave toronto and i figured if i said no that he was going to trade me yeah, and I sort of want to quickly jump in there. When I'm looking back at that in retrospect, uh, you know, your teammate Borier Salming was—he had been with the team ten years and was one of the most res- and was respected by everyone. He's in the Hall of Fame, and 
like what what were the circumstances at the time that why wasn't he given why wasn't he you know have given the C and had it put on his jersey? Well, that, you know what that I I actually don't really know. Um, I I do know that Harold loved Boria, and you know it, it was one of those situations that uh, he wasn't going to trade him. Uh, regardless and uh, you know I, I'm pretty sure that he must have been asked several times and he probably said no he didn't want probably the the burden of having that on his sweater uh, but then I know that when uh, Matt Sundin was asked to be captain he called Boria right away and Boria told him uh, you know no don't turn it down he said it would be the best thing for you and and you know, it's an honor to be the captain of the Maple Leafs, so take it. So I'm assuming that at the time he didn't want to deal with it. Um, and and I don't know that for sure. I, like I said, I can't put words in his mouth, but I'm just guessing. You know, it's interesting because Harold Ballard uh, is is a big part of this book, and he remains a polarizing figure. And, it, and it's interesting. I just thought of it. I was going to ask this later, but because you mentioned Boria and he liked Boria, I mean, you know, if you read Wendell Clark's Bleeding Blue, when he liked Wendell. So I just wanted to know, I mean, you know, there, he was polarizing because there were some guys that liked him and he liked them. But wh- why were there certain people you think he just didn't like? And, and, and do you think that was generally tied to something to do with finances? Yeah, I, well, when I say he didn't like, I don't think he didn't like anybody. I mean, I, I don't think he felt that way about any of the players. But I think it, it all came down to whatever a guy wanted uh, money-wise. And, right. You know, if Harold thought it was okay for him to pay the guy that much money, then, you know, he would do it. But, uh, you know, I think there's – I don't think he hated any of the players or di- disliked any of the players. I think there was players that – you know, he liked maybe a little bit more like Boria, who, you know, fought through the 70s, the, the, the Broad Street bullies and all that, and came out of it and, you know, showed that he was a lot tougher than people thought he was just because he was from Sweden. And then, of course, you got Wendell, who played the, the game the way all the guys played it back then, and he was tough as nails, and he could score goals. And, you know, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, uh, and I, and I, I couldn't tell you if he liked me or disliked me or not. I had right. no idea because we never really talked a whole lot. Uh, he was around a lot, but, you know, there wasn't any moment where we sat down and actually had a conversation. Right. Um, you know, just going back to Wendell, he released a book in 2016, and, and I interviewed him with uh, for, for Yahoo at that time. I was writing for Yahoo, and he talked about his injury-plagued years from 87 to 90, and he said... Quote, had I not met a fellow like Chris Broadhurst who dedicated his time and then became head trainer with the Leafs and getting that kind of medical treatment, he means good medical treatment, my body wouldn't have been able to play eventually. So I wanted to know, I know, I mean, given, I mean, where, would, where, where in the chronology does Chris Broadhurst come in? Did he come in after you left, after you were traded to Chicago? Because I imagine he would have probably been able to help you too. Yeah, I think he came in actually probably well it was definitely after I was gone I mean there was there was no such thing when I was there as getting the proper uh, diagnose diagnosis or or treatment and uh, you know, that's just the way it was I mean like I said uh, back in in the late 70s and early 80s uh, 21 teams there was probably five out of 21 that had a legitimate uh, uh, trainer that could look after those types of things and and good thought not that our doctors weren't good i mean right. it's just that you know the, it, it's one thing to know and be a doctor but it's another thing to know what's going on with with hockey players and and what's going on inside what hurts what you know and, and that sort of thing and of course we didn't have the you know mri machines and all that or, or access to them back then so you know, some things went undiagnosed, and uh, unfortunately, uh, it happened to a lot of guys. Yeah, and and that's exactly what I was getting at. I mean, yeah, you kind of unfortunately, came, you know, when you were playing, it was just before that time when when specialization probably came in and probably might might have been able to extend your career, right? Because I think if I remember reading the book, 
you you found out you had an injury later, right? When you went to another team, was it a separated shoulder? Yeah, I had well, I had quite a few of them on both shoulders, but uh, in Buffalo, I got hit and went in with my shoulder, turned my head at the last second from behind into the boards, and the doctor said it was an old injury, and I said, well. Like, what do you mean it's an old injury? I can't move my arm. <laughs> you right. know, he's, he's adamant that, no, no, see, this is just stuff from uh, an old injury. And, yeah, I did separate my shoulder, but it wasn't that bad. And, uh, like I say, you can't move your arm. And I ended up playing a week later, and I still couldn't hardly move my arm. But, you know, they were convinced that there was nothing wrong with me. And uh, so I had to play, and I didn't play very well because of that for the rest of the season, and uh, that affected how the next season started. I'm going to ask you uh, to to read uh, a section now of the book, um, and it deals with the, the first catch-22 in your career. So if you have the book, I'll let you take a second to find it, uh, and, yeah, go ahead whenever you're ready. Yeah, I got it right here. Um a lot of people thought naming me was a knee-jerk reaction by Harold, Jerry, and Nicoluk. Harold just approached me one day in the outer area of the dressing room and said, you're a captain. He didn't ask me. He just told me. The coach announced it in an interview that night, but that was all the notice my promotion received. So just like that, I was the 12th captain in the history of the Toronto Maple Leafs joining the likes of Daryl Sittler, Dave Keon, George Armstrong, Ten Kennedy, and Sill Apps. I remember thinking, this is fabulous. It was a huge honor. There's no question about it. And I recognized it at the time. But I was just 22 years old and not sure I was ready to take on the role. I didn't know how the other guys were going to react. If I could wait a couple of years, I'd be more ready, I thought. But if I turn him down, he'll probably trade me. That was the last thing I wanted, so I just said, thank you, Mr. Ballard. I'm honored, and I'll do the best job that I possibly can. I think Harold asked Borea a couple of times to be captain, probably when Daryl gave up the C, but Borea always said no. He didn't want to be the captain. Borea also knew he could say no to, because Harold loved him. He, was, he wasn't going to get mad and trade him. He would, he would have been the logical choice. I think over time, Borea probably regretted it, but he was also happy to be an assistant captain and not have to talk to the press every day, which is probably one of the biggest reasons he didn't want it. I know that years later, when Matt Sundin was asked to be captain, he spoke with Borea and told him to accept it, that it was, a, that it was something he ultimately regretted not taking because it was the Toronto Maple Leafs, not the Arizona Coyotes or the Florida Panthers. Not to diss those teams and their captains, but this was the Leafs, and it's a hell of an honor. This was the first catch-22 of my career. The fact that I was 22 years old at the time is just a coincidence. I know I'm really not ready to be captain, but if I say no, I'll probably get traded and never get a chance to wear the C or even an A in one of the most historic franchises in the NHL, which I really wanted to happen someday. So... I'm the captain of the Leafs, ready or not. There you go. Well, thank yeah. you for reading that. Yeah, go thank, ahead. thank you, Rick. And I have to imagine, like, uh, you know, now if, you know, a young player gets put in that situation, there's, you know, all sorts of people he could talk to. I have to imagine you didn't really have anyone who could give you sort of a, a rundown or, you know, a how-to on, on, how, on how to have that responsibility at such an early stage of your career. No, it was very. It was difficult. I mean, Boria helped a lot. Well, I sat right beside Boria, right to his left, and, and uh, uh, he, he did help me out quite a bit. He always had my back if I stood up and said anything, and anybody would say anything about it. He would, you know, he would jump in and help, and so you know that kind of eased what what I was going through. But uh, I became a much better captain a couple of years later, I think, and especially when we got younger and I was one of the older guys. And, you know, you gain that respect from the young guys and, and uh, they tend to listen to you a little bit more. I really thought it was, uh, I'm not sure if it was you or for Scott Morrison, maybe out of the part where you, you talked about, and I, I talked about this in my intro, kind of like when you came in 
1980. I mean, the, the the idea of the captaincy with the Leafs, there's really a, you know, that was just maybe six weeks after Daryl had taken this, the, the scalpel to his C. And, you know, it was almost like the opposite of the Montreal Canadiens, you know, where they have the, the sign on the wall that says, you know, to you from failing hands, we throw the torch, be yours to hold it high. It seemed like that was right. You arrived right when the Leafs were kind of having that really tough time and there seemed to be a separation. So I can imagine, yeah, uh, being the leader on that team at that time, it must have felt strange. I mean, did you feel like, you know, the, the attachment to the history was fading in any way? Or, I mean, at that point, are you just a 20, 22-year-old kid just trying to play hockey? I think probably more the latter. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, it was a circus around there with Harold and, and the stuff that went on. And, you know, the fact that he wouldn't pay probably all of us were underpaid compared to what players on other teams were making for what they did and if they were equivalent to what we did. Um, also, he wouldn't pay for a good general manager that could, you know, make that, that deal uh, at the deadline that we needed to get over the hump or, you know, like keep those young 18-year-olds in junior for a couple of years and let them mature and get bigger and stronger. No, put them in and let them fail and that's exactly what happened so uh yeah it was it was tough but uh you know the and all the stuff that went on with daryl and mike palmateer and and uh, punch him and you know but i always believed that you know he's a general manager he's asking them not to go in that because someone had in the shootout thing they had mm-hmm. on yeah. hockey in canada uh because the year before someone got hurt and missed the whole month of the season well I don't know. I was always taught and brought up that, you know, if, if he's your boss or your general manager, whatever he is, you know, you do what you're told. And, uh, you know, so I I don't know. I, I thought it was maybe a little wrong to, to go ahead and just do it and piss uh, punch off, but <laughs> they did. And then, uh, you know, the, everything that happened after that is, is all history and, and well documented that you know, all Daryl's buddies were traded, and uh, that was Punch's way of uh, getting back at him. And and I'm and for yourself, like later on, uh, I know you talk in the books. They you say you realize now that you sort of had, you know, troubles with anxiety. I wonder, like, at what point after playing for the Leafs did you sort of realize that was going on on inside you while you were playing for the team? Um, well, I kind of knew all along, but. Uh, there was one thing that kind of took care of it for me, unfortunately, and that was alcohol. And um, then I, when I started coaching after my first year coaching, I decided that I didn't want to, I wasn't going to drink anymore, and I had, I quit. And then all of a sudden, I started having these problems where you know I I couldn't swallow and you know the anxiousness and all that. And then you know I was diagnosed with it uh, when I went and saw the team doctor. So. Um, I went through all those years with the same thing, but it was the alcohol that I turned to, and unfortunately, that wasn't the best thing for me. You know, I, I just want to uh, ask you about that, and in the sense of, you know, it's, I think it's nine years next week, you know, where you haven't touched a drop, uh, and I want to ask you, do you think the public has, has come along in understanding that? Like, I mean, maybe 20 years ago, if you saw someone, a player, or whatever, had a a DUI, they may look at it in a different way. Do you think we've come a long way in terms of, you know, not just the people that may have the issue, but people understanding that other people may have issues? You know what I mean? Like, do, do you think people are more understanding? Uh, I, I'm not so sure, to be quite honest with you. I, I, I think a lot of people, I don't know what the split would be or the percentage, but I still think there's a lot of people out there that, you know, think that you know our lives uh, are different than theirs because we're profession we were professional athletes and uh, um, you know I, I think now as far as like alcoholism and stuff I think people are much more informed on that now yes and uh, you know I think and I truly believe it's genetic and I think it's almost been proven pretty much that it is uh, so. Yeah, I think in that area, I think people are a lot more educated. But the other part, I'm not so sure what the, you know, like what the percentage would be. But I think there's a vast majority of people that think that 
we never have any problems because we were athletes in the top leagues in North America. Yeah, and I mean, I've seen some of the other, it's been a week now, I think, since this book has been out exactly a week, so I've seen some of the interviews you've had, and one of the things you're adamant about is making sure that if you wrote a book, it wasn't going to be any BS, right? You wanted to, to kind of explain your story with everything involved, and that's that comes across uh, for sure. And I wanted to ask you, I imagine your friendship with Scott Morrison probably made that a lot easier to do, right? Because in the process of writing, he's probably, I imagine, recording with you or sitting somewhere with you and recording what you're saying. And, yeah, I, I mean, to make a long story short, uh, how did making a tell-all with everything that's in this book, how that how was that easier because of Scott Morrison's uh, friendship with you? Well, much easier. I mean, I, I that's that was two of the things people, when they asked me about writing a book, I said, no, I said... It's not the right time, and there's only one guy I'm going to write a book with, and that's Scotty. And Scotty and I had a great relationship from the time he was covering us in Toronto. And uh, I always respected Scotty for the way he did his interviews, and he was he was honest, and he you know he didn't uh, put anything in there that shouldn't have been in there. And uh, you know we've I've been to his golf tournament for many years, and we've become you know pretty good friends. So. I felt very comfortable with Scotty. It didn't uh, keep me from talking about things that were difficult uh, at all. It was, you know, because you know Scotty understood. He, you know, he's been through some hardships himself, and right. he realizes that nothing's perfect. And you know, I, so I, he was a perfect guy to write it with because he understood everything. And and the two of you go way back, I think, even to well before you were even oh, no, in, let's in pro not hockey. Make it sound like we were in the dinosaur era now. <laughs> Come on. Well, no, he just he, he says hey, the two we met before Rick was on the Leafs. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, you just made it sound like it was like the <laughs> yeah. last century or something. <laughs> Point taken. Two centuries ago, but yeah, it goes back to the eighties and when Scotty covered us and. You know, and we shared some some old funny stories both back then, and uh, they used to fly commercial, obviously the the uh, uh, the writers and so on, because Harold wouldn't let anybody on the plane, the charters. Uh, and well, we just shared a lot of funny stories about Rick Fraser and stuff like that, and uh, just some crazy stuff that happened uh, with those guys as well as us, and. Uh, he told me a, a funny story one time. He said, uh, Rick always carried the bottle in his bag, and so he would always just order ginger ale or something. And one of the flight attendants came by, and because he didn't like to fly, he was afraid of flying like I am. And uh, he's, she said, I better not see a different color in that glass <laughs> next time I come by here. And uh, and anyway, then, you know, Scotty was talking to Rick and said, like, well, why, like, you know, when your time's up, your time's up. He says, yeah, but what if it's not my time, but it's his time? And he points to a guy <laughs> sitting across the aisle phone. <laughs> yeah. So I thought that was pretty funny. And uh, uh, I know they had a lot of fun when they were on the road covering us. And uh, uh, But uh, they weren't allowed on the charters. And I think as of today they're, they're still not on the charters not even the radio guys uh jim ralph and uh, uh joe bowen they have to travel on commercial flights it, 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 you also talk about in write about in the book you know maybe if you're on the planes they're on now things might have been a little bit easier i'm imagining from uh, a stress point of view and from maybe a rehabilitation point of view i'm sure it's a lot easier to if you're banged up to be in a first class seat that in a plane that's not uh, rattling around the sky. Oh, absolutely. I, you know, I think it would have made travel a little bit easier. And uh, I mean, like I, we went on one of their planes to Boston with a bunch of uh, MLSE's corporate partners and to watch a Leaf game in, in Boston. And uh, I talked on, I couldn't believe it. I went like, but who owns this? A chic or you know something? <laughs> All these rows of beautiful first-class seats, and in the middle, a big empty space where the all the food was laid out and everything. And and apparently they have the same flight attendants every flight, not the same pilots, but the same crew. Right. And uh, they know exactly what everybody wants 
to drink and everything else, and it's in their seat. It's waiting there when you get on the plane. So I think, yeah, that would have made me a heck of a lot more comfortable than uh, one of those old Convair uh, 540s or 640s. It was uh, Those were, yeah, you got in bad weather in those, and uh, you could get bounced around pretty darn good. Yeah, there, there's an interesting story, and I don't mean to make light of it, where you're talking about, like, you know, you were, you know, getting bounced around uh, or, or, or um, you know, just just reacting so, so um, I guess, reacting uh, to the point where the rest of the team has calmed down because they're see, seeing your reaction to, uh, to, to a, a rocky flight. Um, I, I, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, they, they were pretty bad, and the fact that I was probably the worst guy on the plane, that made everybody else feel a little bit better. Um, I, I, so I, I read that, uh, or I listened to an interview where you talked about the infamous, and I know you got, probably get asked about this all the time, the infamous Titan stick, uh, and how it was in the <laughs> Hall of Fame, uh, and then you got it back. I, I want to know, how, like, how hard is it to get something back that's yours from the hall of fame and what does that process involve well it it's very difficult i'll, <laughs> I'll tell you that right from right now um and uh the gentleman that used to be the curator for the hall of fame uh lefty reed back in my day anyway he would he would just like after i scored 50 goals he just came in the dressing room and said we'd like to put your stick in the hall of fame and you're, you're a 22 year old kid and you're going oh wow, like my stick's going to be in the Hall of Fame and then the next year and then the next year. So all three of them and, you know, I've been trying for years to get the original back, the first one and uh, had to jump through hoops and barrels and then I had, finally had to sign something that's saying that I wouldn't ask for the other two. Uh-huh. I said, that's okay. You can you can keep the other two because I just want the one from the first year. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and there's a there's a quote too. Uh, uh, just building off of that, you said, "Hey, listen, to win a Stanley Cup, I would I wouldn't have traded my first 50 goal season. You could have the other two because uh, the Stanley Cup is the ultimate." I I I didn't realize uh, how how connected you were to to rooting for the team after you retired. I mean, and in, and in, in watching. Uh, the the 92 and 93 run um i'd just like you to take me back to that time of just after retiring and then having to see the leafs that you know you 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 bled for and played so well for all of a sudden having that success you probably wanted all along well it it was great and it was difficult uh i know that sounds funny but there's there was a bunch of guys on that team that i played with uh, not a bunch but you know probably a handful and then there was a bunch of other guys I, I kind of knew a little bit from playing against them and so on and being at different uh, things together. And, uh, you know, it was great. It was great for the city. It was great for the team, uh, the organization. You know, but at the same time, I got traded in 87, and I was only, you know, 28 years old or 20, no, 26 years old, I guess, or 27. And, uh, you know, I, I might have been there playing at that point if I hadn't got traded to Chicago I might have been still there playing and maybe uh, you know could have been the difference in maybe going to the uh, winning it all right. or going to the finals and uh, so it was it was kind of good because I, I enjoyed watching them and seeing the guys that I played with have success and but at the same time thinking you know gosh like if I just hadn't have been traded in 87 I could be there right now Right, uh, I, th- I think you you maybe more than any other Toronto athlete might know what how Demar Derozan felt when the Toronto Raptors won the NBA championship. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I'm, and, yeah. and just uh, you know put it put us in in sort of in your skates uh, now. I think '86 and '87 the Leafs had a little bit of playoff run where they had you know got right to were one win from the conference final. Uh, what what was the atmosphere like? How did the Gardens in those days cr- you know kind of create its own energy? Well, it was pretty crazy, actually, because uh, in those days, like, uh, I mean, you have to, if you're a season ticket holder, you have to purchase your playoff tickets by a certain date. And, uh, you know, things weren't going real good for us in some of those years during the regular season. And I remember uh, that year, uh, a lot of the season ticket holders didn't buy their, their, their playoff tickets. So they were sold to the public. 
So everybody in Toronto that were diehard Leaf fans that couldn't get tickets for regular season games, they came in and bought up all the playoff tickets. So it was it was actually crazy in there during during that run. And uh, I mean, like I think we swept Chicago in the first round, and the brooms were being thrown on the ice and stuff like that. I mean, it was it was pretty crazy because those are the people that weren't season ticket holders. Uh, they they came in and bought them because the season ticket holders didn't think we'd go past the first round anyway, and uh, so it was kind of a different crowd. And a young Nate Sager, <laughs> a young Nate Sager who just asked you that question, was taken with his father to that game because he wasn't a season ticket holder. And yeah, my, my first NHL game, yeah, yeah. If I've got the I've got the it open uh, the game summary in a browser tab, yeah, April twelfth, nineteen eighty six, and there you are scoring the second goal in a seven two Leafs win. And just to oh, talk, wow. just to talk about, I mean, this is to leads to something bigger too because. I remember being envious. First of all, we're both from Kingston, and you couldn't get leave tickets unless you knew a banker or your, you know, dad was a lawyer. So we were always envious and hearing about this mystical game, this sweep of Chicago, where the fans were actually the real fans. And I wonder sometimes if we'd benefit. I don't know if we can ever go back and put the genie in the bottle, but we, you know, you go to a Maple Leafs game now. I've been on press row. We've all been there. It's and it goes across the league. Things are pretty quiet. I wonder sometimes if they just turned off the PA, PA noise and just let the crowds cre- create their own atmosphere, maybe had a section or two where the ticket prices were a little lower, how much home ice advantage may be created. I don't know. I, I, I think of that sometimes. Yeah, that's hard to say, really. I mean, I, you know, um, I guess it depends on where you are. Um, I mean, I think if you're in any of the Canadian cities, I'm, I'm pretty darn sure that uh, uh, the, the crowd wants. But if you're winning, anyway, that's for sure. If you're losing, it might be a little different. But, um, yeah, I think the crowd would really get into it. I mean, uh, down at Scotiabank Arena, I've been there, I mean, a lot of games. And, uh, you know, they've got a pretty exciting team. And uh, while well, they haven't in the playoffs, unfortunately, in the last few years, but um, during the regular season, I've been there where the crowds have been just crazy. Mm. And, uh, you know, and I think it's a generational thing too, is that, you know, I, I see a lot more younger people uh, in the rink today than say back in the eighties. And right. that's probably because the parents are giving the tickets to the kids or, you know, grandchildren or whatever the case might be. But the crowds are much younger, and uh, it's kind of nice to see that the younger generation are getting involved uh, with the organization uh, in that capacity. Um, I, I want to ask you, this isn't in the book, and, 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 I, and I don't mean to ask you the typical hockey question, but I, I, I mean, I will because I, I just thought of it. Um, the In terms of analytics, I mean, you're, you're, you know, you played in an era where that wasn't considered, and it's some people think now it's being considered maybe too much. I mean, I wanted to know where you stand on analytics in evaluating and, and bringing in talent to any team. Um, well, I, I think there's a certain part of some analytics that might be useful, but uh, and they're more useful, obviously, in a, in a sport like baseball uh, than they would be in hockey. I mean, it's such a fast game, and and I don't know. I I just don't see analytics playing a big role in hockey. I think you you can't uh, judge a person's character and what they're going to do out there in order to win on analytics because it just doesn't exist. You know, so there's a lot of intangibles that go into finding a a guy that's going to, you know, help win you a Stanley Cup. And... Uh, that's not in analytics, and right. you know, there's yeah, there's like he goes this fast from here to there. He has a puck x amount of seconds in a game, and I mean, it, it's crazy to look at all those and think that oh, okay, that's the guy that we should draft because he's good at all those things that that are in our analytics. Because you can't judge his character, and I, I think character is yes. I mean, skill and speed are very important, especially in today's game. Uh, but character, to me, is more important than any of that. And, uh, you know, you, 
I mean, yeah, you need skill and, and speed, but uh, you gotta you gotta have the character to to win. Is is it a case where maybe it it it, it can support what you've sort of already know from the you know, the eye test and the, you know I guess the the gut test and you know what you know to be true or what you think to be true? Yeah, I, I think it can help a little bit. Yes, I, I you know there's certain things. I mean, if you're a goalie and your goals against is uh, or your save percentage is 940 or. Uh, well, yeah, okay. The, we we looked at him. He looks like he's got good character. He, he look he's a great goalie. He looks good, and he's got a 940 as opposed to an 870 save percentage. So he, yeah, he's good. So there there are certain parts of analytics that, that would kind of clarify things if you knew the person's character. But in order to do that, you got to talk to the person. You got to talk to people that he played for. And it, it, I mean, that's what goes into scouting nowadays. Is, I mean, these guys are digging. They're going way down the tunnel to find out everything they can about a person before they draft them. And they talk to their former coaches and their their relatives and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's crazy now the way how far down the tunnel they dig to find out about an individual before he's drafted. And I wanted to ask quickly too, from your perspective as a Leafs alumnus. Uh, what has Brendan Shanahan done as you know team president in terms of the way he just sort of understands what the Leafs mean to the city and the province and I guess really the, the whole country? Well, I, I mean, I think he's done a ton. I mean, he, he really has. I mean, first of all, he got the team competitive again, uh, brought in a coach that, you know, was probably good at getting them to a certain level. And teaching them what it what it takes to win, and then obviously he had to make a coaching change. But he's he's done a lot for the history of, of the franchise and and our alumni. I mean, like we've got a nice suite on the 200 level, right behind the visitors net that was used to be two, and he tore the wall down and made it into one, so that our alumni could have a real good place to go and watch the games and. Uh, you know, there used to be a uh, Leaf golf tournament at the start of the year, and there there might have been four or five of us from the alumni there. Now he changed the name, made it the Leafs and Legends, and there's like 40 or 50 alumni, all the current players, and then there's the big uh, blue and white gala at the Royal York. I mean, there's so, so many things that, that Brennan has, has done for the organization and for the alumni. Yeah, and I would encourage this is for our listeners, people to check out his appearance. He was on the the Smartless podcast with uh, uh, Lee, uh, Will Arnett of uh, Arrested Development fame. Now, Rick, I'm also kind of I spend a lot of time in my own head, and I sometimes wonder about you know alternative histories. You know what might have been. I found it interesting. You, you know, your first employer in, in the pro hockey was you know John Bassett with the Baby Bulls in Birmingham in the WHA, and then you also played in Hamilton at. As with the Hamilton Canucks in the AHL, as I think a playing assistant coach, I'm just kind of wondering, like, what should people know about John Bassett and how he kind of tried to push for a second major pro hockey team in Southern Ontario? Well, John was well, he was rich. <laughs> we all know that. <laughs> and John was kind of like a, I don't know, man. He was like he was just the. Uh, uh, yawning guy and always was nice and tanned and groomed and it was it was like Hugh Hefner walking into the room when he came in you know and you you're looking you're going holy cow who is this guy is he a movie star or something and uh, but he, he was a real nice man and uh, you know he did a good thing for uh, all of us baby bulls that played in Birmingham that year and I, I think he kind of knew that the merger was going to take place and we weren't going to be part of it so he signed all of us about halfway through the season to, to new contracts and uh, four year deals and for a lot more money than what we, we made uh, in our uh, first contracts in the NHL because part of the deal in the merger was that the NHL would have to honor all existing WHA contracts and of course it didn't and uh, we went to court and uh each of us received a, a little bit of a, I don't know what you call it, a 
a payout, I guess, or something, which wasn't close to what their contracts were. But uh, anyway, it was a little. It was it was money that was well deserved and uh, money that that helped us uh, at the start of our careers. Yeah, and I, and I guess in the alternate history part, I mean that Birmingham team had played in Toronto, and uh, I, I I just the thought that Doc, because I live in Hamilton and not far from far from the arena where you played, it just always makes me wonder, like, what if you know John could have found a way to have kept that franchise in in Southern Ontario? Or do they get in the NHL in the in the in the merger in 1979? But I guess that, that I guess maybe that's a bit of a fairy tale for me. Well, yeah, I mean. You know, I think well, somebody tried in Markham recently, and um, I don't see it happening. Not anywhere near the the GTA. Um, it's just it's not going to happen. The Maple Leafs are Toronto, uh, the GTA, uh, most of Ontario, with the exception of the Ottawa area, I guess. But. Uh, uh, I mean, it's just, I, I don't think it's going to happen. I don't, I don't think you'll ever see another team in uh, Ontario, another professional team in Ontario. And, uh, you know, I say that uh, because I think Maple Leafs just are not going to let that happen, MLSC and, and the Toronto Maple Leafs. And there's too much at stake. And, and I'm not sure another team could survive in this area because everybody says, it's funny, I've heard it so many times that it's a, it's a hockey market. And well, guess what? Brampton uh, Battalion had to move because they couldn't draw any fans. The uh, Ice Dogs, or well, they're not the Ice Dogs anymore. They're the what the heck are they? No, the Steelheads. 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 Right? And uh, they don't draw, and probably will be will end up moving at some point. Uh, now Hamilton's far far enough away that I, I'm you know I, I think they do okay uh, their junior team. But other than that, like even the Marlies, like I mean, they they give a lot of tickets away because they want people in the seats. And no, it's it's a leap town. It's not a hockey town. Well said. I, I, go ahead, Dean. Oh no, you got it. Okay. Man. Well, I won't I won't keep you too much longer because I know you've given us a lot of time. So I have just a couple quick questions for you. Um, the first one is kind of like follows Nate's "What if?" And I I just wonder in terms of I mean, you came from an era where guys weren't getting big-time money, at least, you know, maybe Gretzky was, but a lot of the guys weren't. And, I mean, you were a prolific scorer. I just sometimes wonder, do you think if you, you you know, had scored 50 for another team, let's say the North Stars, do you think your, your you know, your current marketability would have, you know, what what does it mean for you now to what you can, you know, command when, you, when you're out and the demand people have to want to see you get your autograph? What does it mean to have done that and have those 50-goal seasons with the Leafs as opposed to someone else? maybe on the autograph oh market? Well, it means a lot because, like I say, it's a leap town, and it's the whole GTA, and when I do a lot of appearances and stuff like that, and, I mean, the, the people come out in droves, I mean, to get autographs from former Leafs, current Leafs, you name it. And uh, for me, it's like, you know, I mean, when you walk out of Maple Leaf Gardens and there's, like literally probably a hundred people standing there waiting for an autograph and you're standing in the middle of the winter freezing and it's for 45 minutes or so <laughs> signing autographs. I mean, but that, you know, you take that with your job. That's like, okay, they're waiting for, to get an autograph and I'm going to oblige because, you know, these people, uh, you know, they're diehard fans and they, they care about it. And most of them that are out there probably, people that have season tickets so they're pay- they're also paying your paycheck so uh but no it, it's kind of nice because i don't think i mean if minnesota is a pretty big hockey market uh you know anywhere else in canada but i think if you go to most of the other places uh you wouldn't you wouldn't be getting that uh that same type of thing after you're retired uh, and I'll close on this. I mean, a, a lot of the stories so far on this book, a lot of the interviews have dealt with, I mean, with, hey, wouldn't it be nice to have Rick Vibes 22 uh, up in the rafters? So I'll, I'll change that around and just ask you, let's say it does go up. Uh, wh- wh- what, do you, wh- what will you be thinking about when, when you see it go up, if it ever does? Uh, what would I? Wow. Well, first of all, I'd be thinking of, 
you know, what an honor it is, obviously, uh, to be up there with, you know, all those great players that are up there now. And um, I guess I'd be thinking about family, uh, my immediate family, my family I grew up with, and, uh, you know, how my dad, mom and dad didn't went without so we could always have hockey equipment or baseball equipment, whatever we needed to play sports. So I think all those things would be going through my mind, and uh, uh, if it if it happens, and uh, it certainly would be a wonderful evening uh, for my family, that's for sure. And you you think uh, just one thing I forgot to ask. I mean, uh, I because I worked with Steve Ludzik at the score, and uh, I, I wanted to ask, you thank you don't thank but you acknowledge him at the end of the book. I just wanted to know how was it in Buffalo that you guys became friends, or in Rochester, and. And how did you guys become so tight over the years? And how's Ludzi doing now? Uh, no, actually, it was in Chicago. We played together oh, in yes, Chicago for for a year and a half, and then he was in Rochester when I was in Buffalo. And uh, no, I, we we kept in touch uh, somewhat, like not you know on a regular weekly basis or anything. And then uh, you know I heard he had uh, Parkinson's, and I came down to visit him and. He started wanting to do golf tournaments and a roast and everything to open a, a center at Hotel Duchaver for uh, Parkinson's rehab. And uh, so I started helping out. And uh, everything was done really, really well. Golf tournaments went off every year, the roast. And uh, so then, you know, I was down here so much that uh, I decided to move down here. To Niagara. <laughs> To Niagara, yeah, wow. and uh, get out of Oakville and uh, make a little money in the process by selling a, a house uh, that I bought in 2000 for a lot more than what I paid for it and buying one for the, roughly the, well, cheaper than what I paid for the Oakville one originally in 2000. So oh. so it all worked out pretty darn good. Okay, and not right now, Ludzi's doing pretty good. He's uh, he's hanging in there and, um, you know, I... I drive up uh, he's not that far he lives probably about a mile and a half from me and uh so i drop in once in a while and he drops in here once in a while when he's driving around and um it's great because we love to sit around and chat about the old times and uh, uh get caught up on what's going on now i mean i think he's got four grandchildren now and uh you know but he's hanging in there and uh you know hopefully uh Something will happen soon, and uh, he'll get a, a donor of a of a lip part of his, the liver that he needs, and yep. and he'll be around to enjoy the his grandchildren for many years. Well said. Well, again, uh, Rick Vive, thank you so much for taking your time out of your day. I know you you're, you're a big golfer, so I hope we didn't interrupt your golf game today uh, or, or or upcoming and. <laughs> no. uh, not in this weather. <laughs> <laughs> well, you just you just need a little patch of green down the fairway. <laughs> um, so. Well, uh, we we got indoor golf, so there's a play, real nice place here in Niagara. Oh, nice. My buddies and I we usually try to go once or twice a week and play a little eighteen hole match uh, indoors, and it's a lot of fun. So uh, we keep it up during the winter because I. I'm Pretty darn sure there isn't going to be any alumni <laughs> games this winter. So well, who's the best? Uh, so we'll, we'll, go ahead. We'll be out there. We'll be in there hitting the ball off the screen. And uh, in fact, my one of my buddies texted me and said, uh, "Do you want to play Friday?" And I can't because I've got some interviews to do Friday. <laughs> and I said, "But hey, next week, except for Monday, I'm free every day right now." <laughs> hey, who's the best uh, Maple Leaf alumni golfer? Is it is it Mark Osborne? I've been hearing him tell me a lot about how great he is. Who's the best uh, Maple Leaf alumni? No, <laughs> no, it's not Ozzy. It's uh, Gary Lehman's probably uh, the best yes. uh, alumni. I like to say I am, but I'm not. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but hey, you know what? This year I started the year at a nine handicap and brought it down to a four. So uh. things are looking good. Even though I'm getting older, it's, uh, I go to a buddy of mine in Kitchener, uh, a guy from Scotland who has a teaching and fitting center, and uh, I go there once a month roughly. And he, he's he got a fabulous place with cameras everywhere so you can see what you're doing. And uh, it's really helped my game. It's probably given me about 15 20 extra yards oh. and 
Uh, so it's been great. Well, you know what? This has been great. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today, and, and good luck with the uh, the rest of the, the the interviews, and and I hope the book uh, 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 is received well by everyone else, like it was by us. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you, gentlemen.